few years back, a Canadian magazine called McLean's tried to explain American elections to their readers. How candidates get nominated. How the field gets winnowed down. This article calls our system mind-boggling. It turns out that an election takes four times as long in the U.S. as it does in Canada. So if you're watching the debate later this week, wondering, are we there yet? It's not just you. That's real. The last thing this magazine tries to explain is the Electoral College, the system our founders set up to prevent voters from directly electing a president. By this point in the article, the author's tone is weary. We'll try to explain, she says, but the Electoral College doesn't make a whole lot of sense for modern democracy. It turns out Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, he pretty much agrees with this sentiment. I asked him to explain the Electoral College. Here's what he said. It is like a Rube Goldberg device that makes very little sense today, that serves a purpose entirely different from what it was designed to do, that mostly works out just fine, but when it doesn't, the results are catastrophic for presidential legitimacy. When someone like my kids' friends tell me, like, your vote doesn't count because of something like the Electoral College, are they right? Pretty much since you live in New York. Ever since 2016, when Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but lost the election anyway, there's been a steady drumbeat of voices saying the Electoral College has got to go, saying that a system that was supposed to temper democratic flights of fancy has instead ended up ignoring small-D democratic will. As a result, presidential candidates cater their campaigns to swing states, and a lot of the electorate simply tunes out. If you are a Republican in Idaho, you don't have a very strong reason to go out to the polls because your state is going to go for Trump. It's going to go for Republican. And there's just not that much of an incentive, I think, to vote for the president because, you know, it's a foregone conclusion which way your state's going to flip. And this is all because the way it works is that if a candidate wins a state, they get all of the electoral votes. In every state except for Maine and Nebraska, that is correct. And Maine and Nebraska have so few electoral votes that those exceptions really don't matter that much. Uh, It's a winner-take-all system in the vast majority of states. More than anything else, it's the machinery that makes Mark mad. The fact that we've built layers on layers of bureaucracy. You cast a vote for president, then a whole other group of flesh-and-blood people, the electors, choose the actual winner. Only they don't choose. They just do what they're told. You could, you could, Roombas could do this. You could, you could just like put, have a room full of Roombas and like put a sticker on them to mark who they voted for. And that would be it. These people are the personification of a meaningless system. Like, like this whole idea that the electors gather. Well, yeah, they gather, but they are told who to vote for. They are not exercising any independent judgment. But someone's got to do it, right? It turns out there are a bunch of people trying to find a way out of the Electoral College. It wouldn't be easy. It might not be pretty. But today, Mark is going to talk about whether it's even possible. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Can you tell me what the problem is with the Electoral College? I mean, it's definitely ceremonial, but that's not necessarily an issue. The weird thing about the Electoral College, or one of the weird things, is that the Electoral College is sort of built on this system of malapportionment. Uh, we don't think about it that much because it's it's a matter of states, and we just sort of assume that states are all the way they are for a reason. But the truth is that because of this system, votes are counted unequally. And that, in any other context except the Senate, would be a cardinal sin uh, of voting rights to have one vote count more than another just on the basis of geography. That's sort of the definition of malapportionment. Yeah. When the Electoral College was created, right, when the framers came together and designed this system, they said, look, we don't trust the people to choose a president. We don't like popular democracy that much. We're going to have the people vote for individuals. The people were going to vote for electors who are just smart dudes. And then those smart dudes are all going to get together in their respective states and decide who should be the president. So we aren't really voting for the president. We're voting for these electors. And the electors are supposed to exercise their independent judgment. How'd that work out? That's how it was originally supposed to work. It did not work out at all. Really what happened was slowly but steadily, states began to abandon this formalist procedure of electing electors and just put it to the popular vote. And states passed laws that said, look, you electors, you're going to exist because you have to, but you're going to cast your vote under state law. You're going to have to cast your vote for the individual who wins the popular vote in the state. And that's how the vast majority of states assign their electors today. You know, the electors still meet, but it's a formalism because they are legally obligated to cast their votes for the winner of the state popular vote. So over the years, the role of the elector evolved from an independent political actor to a rubber stamp. But there was a problem. When you give all your state's electoral votes to the winning party, you erase the votes of the minority. And that can be a lot of votes. The electors are stuck in the middle. Yeah, what does the Electoral College look like today? Like, Does it look like a few guys in a living room having snacks and like checking boxes? Yeah, pretty much. They're basically just munching on their Cheez-Its, like filling out paperwork, right? That is the only duty they have because, again, they are required by state law to cast their vote for the winner of the state's popular vote. So I wonder if you can play out some scenarios for me of what could happen in 2020 that are sort of giving folks nightmares. Like we've already seen last time around how someone can win the popular vote but then lose the electoral college. 
Are you worried that's going to happen again in 2020? Absolutely. And I think it could happen with an even bigger margin. I think that the loser of the Electoral College could win the popular vote by even more votes. Hillary won the popular vote by nearly 3 million, right? I've seen analysts say that that number could creep up even higher uh, and still have that the winner of the popular vote losing the election because of the Electoral College. And that seems like a problem. How would that work? I mean, pretty simple. Uh, There are a lot of Democratic voters in places where lots of people live in states like California and New York, and they are going to vote for the Democrat. And yet their votes are not going to be as important as some people who live in more conservative states in places like the Midwest and Wyoming and Idaho. And so because there are these votes are not counted equally, it won't matter how much of a surplus the Democrat builds up in a state like California, because as long as the Republican wins a state like Iowa, Wisconsin, Wyoming, you know, by a few votes that that Trump could still win the presidency. There's something that bothers me even more, by the way, that I'm even more concerned about. It seems like it's a long shot, but you can actually calculate a lot of ways that it could happen, which is a tie in the Electoral College. And there's another possibility in which no candidate reaches 270 electoral votes. Say a third party candidate runs and siphons off a bunch of votes and wins a few states. And if no candidate wins 270, or if the candidates tie, then the election for president is thrown to the House. Okay, and it's thrown to the new house, the one that's elected, you know, that same day. So this would be the house that meets in 2021. Right. But here's the part that I think a lot of people forget. When the House votes for president, every state delegation has one vote. Right. So there are 50 votes total. Are you still with us here in this scenario? Say it's the 2020 election, Trump versus some person. And either Trump and his opponent are tied in the Electoral College or some third party candidate is in the mix and keeps any presidential contender from hitting the 270 votes they need. Now it's out of the hands of the Electoral College altogether and into the hands of the newly chosen congressional delegations from each state. So Florida has 27 congressional districts. Therefore, it has 27 seats in the House of Representatives. So if there was a tie in the Electoral College or someone didn't win a majority, then the state delegations would all meet and take the example of Florida. A majority of congressmen, presumably, would vote for the Republican right now, would vote for Trump. Say 14 House members from Florida voted for Trump. That would mean that the state's vote goes to Trump. And the issue is that even though Democrats hold a majority in the House and they could potentially grow that majority in 2020, right, because in large part of gerrymandering, Republicans have a substantial majority of state delegations. So theoretically, you could have a Democrat win the popular vote. You could have a Democrat win the most electoral votes or tie with Trump. Then the election could go to the House. You could have Democratic House majority of 40, 50, even more. And a Republican, meaning Trump, could still win the election because of this weird quirk. Okay, so you've laid out a bunch of problems here. Do you think there's actually a chance this could change? 
Well, so let's talk about let's talk about the BACA case, right? Because that is the the one major effort right now that's sort of attempting to blow up the Electoral College by driving it to the most absurd result possible. The BACA case. Michael BACA was an elector for Colorado. And in 2016, he looked around at the other people in the Electoral College with him and he went, what are we, people or sheeple? He starts agitating to be what's called a faithless elector. And said, you know what, I am not going to cast my vote for the winner of Colorado's statewide vote, who was Hillary Clinton. He said, instead, I'm going to cast my vote for John Kasich, former governor of Ohio. Can he do that? <laughs> well, he first of all, I think it's important to note he did it because he wanted to create some kind of groundswell, right, among other electors to become faithless and to sort of select a compromise candidate, right? So, oh, we won't have Trump, but we won't have Clinton either. We'll have John Kasich. The answer to the question, can he do that, is on its face, the answer was no, because it violates Colorado law, right? Again, almost every state says to its electors, we get that you exist because you have to, but we're going to order you to just sit in a room and eat Cheez-Its and fill out paperwork because you're going to have to cast your vote for the winner of the statewide vote. And Michael Baca said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to vote for somebody else because I have a right under the constitution as an elector to do what Hamilton described and use my best judgment to uh, cast my vote for whoever I think should be president. I'm imagining a guy like giving a big speech, being like, everybody with me. And then he looks around he's all by himself. <laughs> there were a few others who did this, too, including in Washington state and uh, Washington state actually fined them because, again, it, it's against state law to cast your vote for whomever you want. Uh, and the Washington Supreme Court upheld that and said, yeah, electors can be forced to vote for who the state tells them to vote for. In other words, the winner of the state vote. It was a different story in Colorado. So what happened here is Colorado actually nullified Michael Baca's vote, canceled his vote, replaced him with an elector who would vote for the winner, Hillary Clinton of, of that state. And Baca sued in federal court and he won at the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which issued this very long, I think, carefully written and well thought out decision saying you don't have to like it. But the way this system was designed to work is that electors have a sort of right, uh, a, a freedom to vote their conscience, to use their best judgment, uh, and the state does not get to undermine or nullify that right. The state cannot come in and say, you have to vote for this person. That's not how the Electoral College works under the Constitution. And if you want to change that, you're going to have to change the Constitution. And he's working with this Harvard professor, Larry Lessig. And you say he looks at this case and he's like, bring it on. We're going to reveal just how absurd this whole thing is. Yeah, that's right. Lessig's goal is to blow the whole thing up by revealing its absurdity, which I think is a little distressing because if the election were held today for president, states within the Tenth Circuit could not legally force their electors to vote for the winner of the state vote. So they have a so right to So everyone could vote for John Casey. <laughs> yeah. Or let's say the election were really close uh, and it all came down to Colorado and somehow Colorado swung 
Republican, all of those uh, conservative voters in the Air Force turned out en masse, right, in, in Colorado Springs and swung the state to Trump. Four electors could stand up and say, hey, we're going to vote for Joe Biden instead. And if Joe Biden gets over 270 from that, then he wins the election and Trump loses. But Lessig is appealing this with the idea that he wants to send it to the Supreme Court before an election so they can consider this when they don't have the pressure of everyone looking at them and demanding answers and waiting for a president. That's right. right, Because he wants the rule in the Tenth Circuit to apply all over the country. He wants every elector to have a right to be faithless. So in his system, there would be an election and there would be a theoretical winner of the Electoral College. But then when the electors actually met the next month, they would have a total freedom to vote for uh, any candidate they wished. And what would happen is they would be subject to immense lobbying and pressure, I think quite obviously, in those few weeks to, uh, you know, switch their vote, to stick to their vote, to find a compromise candidate, whatever. They would suddenly hold the power of uh, choosing the next president in their hands, unencumbered by state laws telling them who to vote for. Do you think the Supremes are going to take this case up? I think right now it looks pretty likely that this case is going to go to SCOTUS and SCOTUS is going to take it because you have two clashing decisions that bear uh, on the outcome of the next presidential election. So Larry Lessig wants to solve the Electoral College by just letting these electors kind of do whatever they want. But he's not the only person reimagining the Electoral College. There's also this idea that the states should all be voting for whoever wins the national popular vote. Can you explain that movement a little bit? So that is a much easier movement to understand. It's it's this effort to build an interstate compact that uh, will bind states to cast their electoral votes for the winner of the popular vote. So the idea here is that once states whose total electoral votes add up to 270, which is the number it takes to win the election, once all of those states have joined a compact that declares we will assign our electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, then sort of by definition automatically, the winner of the popular vote will be the president, right? Because states whose electoral votes add up to 270 have all agreed to give those votes to the winner of the popular vote. And I guess this avoids like having to do a constitutional amendment or something complicated like that. That's the idea because a constitutional amendment would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, because small states still like the Electoral College because it gives them a guaranteed baseline of importance, right? No state has fewer than three electoral votes. Same with the District of Columbia. So I think that this is probably the most realistic way out of the conundrum. The National uh, Interstate Popular Vote Compact would be a pretty clear way to just tell states, look, you can play games with the Electoral College, you can assign your votes however you want, but we, the majority of states whose votes add up to 270, we're going to respect the popular vote winner and in that way, we're going to choose the next president. What are the risks of going to a national popular vote? Are there any? Are there like lessons to be learned from other places that do this differently? I guess the best argument I have heard 
against a national popular vote is what happens if the national popular vote is really close and it comes down to like a handful of contested votes. Say there are provisional ballots, it's not clear if the individual has established residency or whatever, you know. There are always some kind of outlier issues in elections, whether this ballot can be counted or not. Uh, and if there were a national popular vote, then theoretically the, the winner of, of the presidency uh, could ride on whether or not a few people voted correctly. The problem with that theory is that it's already happened under the Electoral College, right? It happened in Florida in 2000. That was the nightmare that defenders of the Electoral College say isn't going to happen. It happened in Florida because the entire election came down to one state and that state had problems with its voting procedures. So I don't think that's a very plausible defense of the Electoral College. It's one that I have heard. Another is that candidates would ignore small states if the Electoral College didn't exist. But uh, again, they already do unless those small states are swing states. So I don't find that uh, to be a plausible counterargument either. I mean, I think the argument is like, well, then won't the candidates just spend all their time in New York and California and Texas and these places really become the hub because so many people are there. And I think for someone living in Ohio or Wisconsin or Michigan, they might feel like... If the Electoral College went away, a feeling of being abandoned and forgotten would be exacerbated. Like we're already dealing with folks saying, you know, the the parties don't represent me and no one's listening to me. And I think the fear about eliminating the Electoral College is that that sentiment would just be much stronger. I really kind of fundamentally reject the idea that it would be a problem for candidates to spend a majority of their time in places where a majority of Americans live. I mean, we do have a principle of one person, one vote in almost every election in this country, except for for Senate and president. And the idea that, oh, well, large population centers shouldn't matter that much. I, I don't really see where that comes from. You know, legislators and the president represent people, not trees, not land, not acres. They represent individuals who are casting the ballots. So if the presidential candidates spend a lot of time where Americans mostly live, I don't think that's that much of a problem. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for having me on. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law for Slate. All right, that is the show. We call it What Next because we keep asking ourselves that question, seriously. The producers for the show are Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Daniel Hewitt. I am Mary Harris. You can find me on Twitter at Mary's Desk. Check out what I'm doing when I'm not writing scripts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.